Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. In Nashville, Tennessee, I'm the professor, Matt Perkins. And joined with me this evening uh, from the second city for our, I believe this is our fifth short punt, Josh, fifth or sixth. I'm not sure. Exactly sure, something like that. Um, it is, you've already heard his voice. It's our intrepid blogger from Big Ten Counting, Josh Cook. Yeah, this is the best thing about the offseason are the uh, short punts. This, is, this will be our first one of the 2018 offseason as we head into uh, the 2018-2019 season. Yeah, so for those of you who have not uh, heard one of these before, uh, this is our sort of uh, homage to a lovely, lovely podcast called The Dollop with uh, yeah. Dave Anthony and Gareth Reynolds. Yeah, it's a ripoff kind of. Yeah. I, 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 say, I say homage because it, it, it sounds much more polite, but yeah. uh, if the uh, sincerest form of, uh, of uh, flattery is mimicry or whatever the, the heck that saying is, I don't know. I'm completely off yeah. that one. But and, I mean, let's give a full disclaimer. I mean, uh, they are professional comedians. We're not. We're just shooting the shit. Uh, they do stories from history, and they've done very, very few sports stories and not a single college football one. Uh, we are strictly doing college football stories. And to quote the great philosopher LeVar Ball, we are staying in our lane. Yeah, we are definitely staying in our lane. Our lane is college football. And uh, so uh, today I will be telling a story, and Josh has no idea what's coming. Uh, he has no idea what the topic is. So uh, yep. let's get it started, Josh. Uh, and so in, in uh, doing my best, Dave, um, 13th century Ottoman Turkey. Ooh, yeah, and uh, we guarantee this will be related to college football eventually. Eventually, yes. Uh, I would say these to- the topics for these podcasts are uh, college football adjacent, <laughs> for chance. Um, well, 13th century Ottoman Turkey, Josh. In order to keep up morale in their ever-expanding empire, Emperor Osman I established the Metair Corps of the, Turkish, of the Ottoman Turkish military. Yeah. The, Josh, are ensembles of Janissaries, com- uh, w- which compromise the first ever recorded military marching bands. Uh, Janissaries, Josh, as any Sid, Meier, Sid Meier's civilization enthusiast would know, <laughs> were powerful infantry units. Mm-hmm. And uh, they composed the first standing army on the European continent. Nice. How many French horns did they have, though? Uh, zero. Uh, wow. Because well, they are they are virulently uh, anti-Francophone there in Ottoman Turkey, Josh. I mean, French horns make for a delightful marching instrument. <laughs> Up there with a cello and a violin. Uh, I'm I'm personally a, a big fan of the uh, marching double bass. Yep, obviously. And and, uh, and the marching double bassoon. Hmm. But uh, now these Metier Corps uh, started to play a new style of music during battle, one that was characterized by its intense percussion, high, shrill winds, and horns. They don't have French horns, but they've got some other horns, Josh. And now they've got this new music to bring into battle and really scare the crap out of everyone else that they're going against. Yeah, obviously. I'm just curious, uh, at what point... Does Nick Cannon make an appearance when you talk about drumline? Um, Josh, are, are, are you serious that you just asked that question? Because that is literally the last line of this entire story. <laughs> I'm just going to read it now. Josh. I'm going to read it now because you've already... Uh, apparently, I buried the lead because I said literally... I'm going to read you verbatim the last line of this story. It says... The crowning achievement, obviously, is the phenomenal Nick Cannon project from 2002, Drumline. <laughs> so, you don't know what we're talking about beforehand, but apparently you are just reading my computer. Well, I know you so well, and I mean, uh, yes. you have a soft spot for that movie, because it is genuinely 
it's one of those movies that's so bad it's funny. Oh, it's it's so bad, but it's so good at the same time. Mm-hmm. So it's it's like a uh, how would I put it? A, a less East Asian um, uh, rush hour. Uh, fair enough. Okay. <laughs> so um, we're going to fast forward a few centuries, though, from 13th century Ottoman Turkey. Um, and we're going to find the fledgling colonies of the United States of America. Perfect. Uh, Josh, they really don't like the British. And they're starting to organize some state militias. Um, the colonies have begun to organize military bands as well as to be part of these state militias. Um, the first one, Josh... Uh, the first organized military band in the United States comes from my home state of New Hampshire back in 1653. Now this unit of 15 oboes and two drums. Now 15 oboes and two drums is not what I would personally choose to have as my marching band. No, no, now, but somehow this begat the archetype for the for American military music. So not a piccolo, no a piccolo, oboe? no fifteen oboes. Why? Uh, I guess they were just really big into double reeds at that point. It's. I mean, your state does some really stupid stuff, and their most famous landmark is a mountain that no longer exists. But um, I mean, that that might be a new low for the state of New Hampshire. Yeah, it's pretty sad. Yeah, um, uh, half half your family just stopped listening because I insulted the great man in the mountain. It's it's okay actually. No one in my family is actually born in New Hampshire, so I don't feel that bad about it. Uh, um, so, <laughs> they're all interlopers. Yeah, well, pretty much. So, um, but this quickly uh, transforms to the fife and drum corps, which becomes the standard for musical support in the army during the Revolutionary War. One of the uh, uh, one of the big problems that faced the Continental Army was a lack of bugles. Um, oh, we have the same problem in Chicago. <laughs> so th- there was a, a shortage of brass in the colonies, and they couldn't make bugles. And the the generals were really upset about this. The Redcoats, the Hessian mercenaries, they had their fancy-schmancy European bugles um, to use as signals on the battlefield. And this ended up demoralizing the, the Continental Army. Um, Colonel Joseph Reed was once quoted as saying, uh, quote, the enemy appeared in open view and sounded their bugles in a most insulting manner, as is usual after a fox chase. I never felt such a sensation before. It seemed to crown our disgrace. Yikes. And he's, uh, he's supposed to be leading soldiers in the battle. Yeah, and, but he was, he was dissuaded by the sounds of a bugle. I haven't heard a speech that bad since uh, Todd Licklider got fired. Hey-o. It's um, <laughs> a, a deep cut for some Iowa people. <laughs> After the war, which uh, the Americans without their bugle still managed to win, that's how badass they were. Um, it took a couple of years for this whole sort of national army thing to get figured out. So it wasn't until 1798 when the Marine Corps established their first drum and fife ensemble that there was truly an American with a capital A military band um, as, a, as an official part of the United States of America. Now, um, quickly thereafter, though, there were three very key developments First of all, a standardization of uniforms occurs. The U.S. Marine Band wore red uniforms for drilling and combat, so it made them more easily noticed by commanders in the field who used the band to signal orders to different units, which I had not realized. I did not realize that the purpose of the band uh, in battle was not just to have some background music, but was indeed to have... Uh, uh, to say, oh, okay, um, cavalry, you need to charge. Well, we have a certain bugle call for that. Oh, infantry, you need to retreat. Here's the bugle call for that. So, uh, and the general would signal to the bugle corps. The bugle corps uh, director would then say, you know, get out this page, play this, you know, play this that you need to play, and the and the military would respond in kind. It's sort of a, a first-generation walkie-talkie. Now, these were fully trained soldiers. I'm assuming that they also had weapons handy for if their position got overrun, right? Um, Their weapons were uh, the musical instruments that they had in their hands. 
I and think nothing else. Okay. I think, I think that they had. I think they may, they may have had a sidearm, but they were not also carrying you know muskets with bayonets or anything like that. Yikes! So they are they are a little bit behind the soldiers for the most part. But if they get overrun, um, they don't have much in the way of defense. Mm. Wow, that feels like a slight disadvantage for the bugler. It was. Um, uh, well, speaking of bugles, though, the bugle is officially and formally introduced into the American military band. Um, only riflery units were allowed to use the almighty bugle during the War of 1812. Um, I don't know what it was about the riflery units, but for somehow they got the bugles. Uh, soon thereafter, well, though, that's, that's because the artillery generally uses cellos to signal each other. I mean, the, the, those uh, low bass tones don't mm. a, a, at all in, interfere with the uh, with the booms that come out of the cannon. No, no. Um, and then finally, third, emulating trends from European bands. Um, moving fast forward to 1855, Francesco Scala, the director of the U.S. Marine Band, introduces a bearskin helmet for the drum major, which added some flair to some, the otherwise stodgy group of musicians. Uh, the drum major obviously becomes a point of uh, great pride amongst the, the marching bands in order to differentiate themselves from uh, other factions within the army. Um, after the conclusion of the Civil War, we see a boom in march music in both the popular and military levels. Led by John Philip Sousa, American composers were pumping out march after march, uh, heavy featuring the bright brass and intense percussion. Josh, random aside here, um, my great-great-great-grandfather uh, uh, was, in fact, John Philip Sousa's uh, manager. Wow. Um, toured, yes, and toured with him throughout the country. My family actually still retains rights to uh, many John Phillips who's a marches. Oh, uh, that explains your ringtone then. Oh, uh, yeah. Oh, Matt's got to take that. Sorry. Yeah, sorry about that, guys. Um, so, uh, but during the same pe- during this time period, right after the Civil War, um, football begins, begins to take off in America, especially at universities on the East Coast. Many colleges start playing their own version of what is called mob football. Yeah, the has- birthplace of football, as we know, is that great historic Big Ten institution, Rutgers. Uh, if you count up all the Big Ten titles Rutgers has, you have about almost as many as Indiana. Hi-yo. Um, so, but mob football, Josh, uh, has its origins in the Middle Ages in England. Are you familiar with mob football? Duh, yeah, I've written a book on it. All right. Well, yeah. for those of you who aren't as familiar with mob football, it's basically any sort of game where you've got a whole bunch of dudes on each side trying to get the ball into a goal by any means necessary. Yeah, it's um, called uh, it's called Smear the Welsh Guy. Exactly, exactly, yeah. um, for the politically correct. Yeah. Um, and it's also how they uh, decided to... Uh, to, to settle the uh, Ireland versus Northern Ireland, Catholic versus Protestant wars. Was just yeah, that's, that's Miami versus Notre Dame. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. We're all of it. This is, this is old stuff. I mean, we all know this. All right. All right. Well, more than two decades before the first college football game was ever won, played and won by Rutgers over Princeton on November 6, 1869, um, colleges began to form their own marching bands. Uh, the first of these, Josh, you want to take a guess where the first college marching band was? Hmm. Florida a and No, we'll get to them. <laughs> but, um, no. Uh, Notre Dame. Notre Dame, uh, in fact, has the first, uh, has the first uh, college football mining band. Um, they were founded. That makes sense. They, that were, makes sense. they were formed in 1845. Well, I mean, you know, you know the old expression about Catholics and their music, so it goes without saying. What that they only like chant, like do like Gregorian chant? Hmm? No, oh, it's a, it's such a cliche. All of our listeners know what I'm talking about. Don't worry about it, man. Okay, okay. Uh, Catholics well, love music. The, the, well established. The Fighting Irish Band played their first game, played at their first game in 1887. And by the turn of the 20th century, most major universities sported marching bands on their campuses, typically, typically directly associated with ROTC programs. So what did they do for halftime before the band? Nothing? Um, well, it's funny that you should mention uh, halftime, because we're going to get to halftime here in just a second. But 
Um, around the same time period, a little, a little bit, uh, you know, just after the f- turn of the century, college marching bands also begin to incorporate fight songs. Josh, I just asked you where the first marching band was from. Now I'm going to ask you where, what school uh, composed their first original fight song? I'm going to go with Yale, and that's a serious guess. Not like my Florida head, I'm guessing. You are in, this school is in a state adjacent to uh, Yale's home state of Connecticut. Um, Brown. You also might say that I am very disappointed that this school is the first school to have a fight song. Boston College. <laughs> that is correct. Dude, I'm telling you, Catholics and their music. Is- I know, apparently. Um, uh, for Boston was composed by alumnus T.J. Hurley for the class of 1885. Soon thereafter, some of the some of the fight songs that we all know and love, the Victors, the Notre Dame, Victory March, Anchors Away, On Wisconsin, uh, were were written almost always by alumni of the school and started to be performed by bands at football games. Yeah. So now you know it's the turn of the century. We've got bands. We've got. Uh, we've Run that got, list by me again. Uh, but uh, the Victors, Notre Dame, Victory March, Anchors Away, On Wisconsin. Yeah, yeah. That, that was just uh, four of the earlier ones. They're not the four. Or oh, no. They're not the you know next four, but they're four of the earlier ones. I have one of my classic Josh like zone out for a moment. That's okay. I'll forgive you this time. <laughs> um. So during the first quarter century of organized collegiate football, bands performed either before or after games. However, that all changed in of all places. Champaign, Illinois. 1907, the Marching Illini played the first halftime show in the history of football. In their game... Now, now did they tell anyone they were going to do this, or did the band just come out on the field? That is unclear. Actually, I can't even get it. Through my research, I was not even able to get an exact date of when uh, of when in 1907, but I do know the opponent that was the University of Chicago. I'd like to imagine that the game was going really poorly, like most Illinois football games do. And the band was just like, you know what? Screw this sucks. Like, let's just go out and entertain. Well, it's funny you should mention that, Josh, because as I wrote in my notes, I hope the band was better than the team because the Illini lost 42-6. to I mean, when it comes to Illinois football, outside of the Red Grand years, just automatically assume they've got a losing record. Juice Williams, baby. <laughs> yes. He's got a couple Super Bowl rings, right? Uh, yeah. On Madden. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, I don't even think he's that good at Madden. But, you know, uh, maybe he's putting down on rookie, uh, on rookie difficulty. Um, 1907, though, that same year, also saw a big break in terms of marching band aesthetics. 90 miles to the east of Champaign, the Purdue All-American Marching Band created a new marching formation, the Block P. Mm, yes. Now, when I first read the Block P, um, I thought I had to cross my legs because I was worried that it was going to go down a very, very dark hole. But no, it was in fact inspired uh, by a time when band director Paul Spots Emmerich saw a saw birds fly in the flying V formation, and he thought, hey, we should do that, but instead of a V, let's make it a P. Um, Jeez, how long did it take for him to come up with that job? Uh, well, apparently, uh, Mr. Emmerich was one of the godfathers of the early, uh, of early collegiate marching bands. Because mm. um, he, he is also responsible for one of our favorite game day traditions, Josh, the big-ass bass drum. And if by one of your favorite game day traditions, you mean one of the stupidest. <laughs> Josh, uh, the, the Purdue enormous bass drum first debuted in 1921. It cost a little bit over $900 to make. It required specially ordered leather from Argentina in order to make large enough drum heads from cows that weighed over 3,000 pounds. Um, in order to move the damn drum... They had to get a specially constructed baggage car from the New York Central Railroad. Whoa, 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 whoa. Are you telling me in engineering school that prides themselves on building trains couldn't figure out how to wheel a drum around? That is, in fact, exactly what I am saying. 
well done, Purdue. <laughs> um, New York Central Road at that point owned by the Vanderbilts, who had their own university with their own marching band. Um, but uh, and also uh, shout out to our favorite uh, uh, collegiate marching band or former collegiate marching band member and listener of the show, Ashley Croft. Um, Spirit of Gold, uh, keep doing your thing. Um, anyhow, uh, back to our story here. Uh, they, de- uh, Purdue debuted this, uh, debuted this massive drum against who else? The Chicago Maroons. Here they are again. In fact, um, the Maroons were so jealous of the giant drum that they went and ordered their own bigger drum, also known as Big Bertha, the following season, um, because they wanted to have a drum that was bigger than Purdue's. Um, if that's not, yeah, I was going to say, if that's not a, uh, an allegory for something much larger at stake there, I'm not sure what is, but they um, wanted the drum so bad that university of Chicago eventually de-emphasized sports to emphasize their drum game. Well, it, when the problem was when they de-emphasized sports, they sold big Bertha to the university of Texas. Good. So, um, that's going to be ironic for Texas to buy a huge leather drum next to Bevo. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, you know, so obviously they, let, they, they wussed out, left football, and decided to be nerds and got rid of their drum as well. So, uh, but by this point, you know, we've got more and more and more schools that have bands, um, and they start to need to differentiate themselves. I mean, how many times can you watch a letter made out of humans and funny costumes move back and forth across the field? Um Quite a few, actually. Well, apparently. But um, in the past century, though, uh, bands have really broadened their style. Um, While some have stayed in more of the military tradition, um, others have become almost incomprehensible in their scramble formations. Now, there there are only, at this point, two schools in the in major college football that have stuck with the, like, the very strict military style, Texas A&M and Virginia Tech. Both of them, not military schools. No, but Texas A&M kind of thinks they are in a weird way, you know? Um, They've got that whole cadet thing going on, and... I don't know. We don't have to get into that, but I, I've got my own issues with, with Texas A&M. But um, in what has been known as the traditional style, um, this was pioneered by another Purdue band director. This time uh, it was Emmerich's, uh, the man who came after Emmerich, Bill Moffat, uh, which is now referred to as the classical style. Uh, it's that of, you know, Big Ten bands, which would be some, which some would view as somewhere between the military style bands and what were called core style bands, which have more of a focus on drum and bugle, but now also incorporate keyboard, percussion, sometimes even synthesizers, God forbid. <laughs> but Josh, wh- where do the best bands come from? Um, the Big Ten. Well, I, yes, but um, the answer I'm looking for is HBCUs. Mm, I'm pretty sure it's a bunch of white guys in the Midwest. Yeah, sure. Okay, well. Um, Would you rather see Grambling's Band or Northwestern's? I rest my case. Um, the only the only way I'm taking Northwestern in this case is if you told me that Grambling's band was I, I don't even know I don't even know how I could. Would possibly. you rather hear Southern University or the Minnesota Rouser? Oh gosh, don't even get me started. Thank you. Okay. Would you uh, rather hear Penn State play Seven Nation Army for the hundredth time or listen to Florida Adam? Well, we'll get to the Rattlers here in a second. But... I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sure I won this round, my friend. All right. Well, uh, Josh, uh, HBCUs had their own take on the traditional style. Um, and at this point, might be more well-known than the actual play on the field. Uh, many HBCUs had bands that dated back to the Civil War era. Historian Sterling Stuckey, great name, by the way, <laughs> um, has done some research that show that a lot of the showmanship that we see and the style we see that come out of HBCU bands harkens back to the 13th century in West Africa, Josh, which is where we find the Yoruba tribe. Um, in parts of what are now Nigeria, Togo, and Benin, the Yoruba people... Benin. 
Benin? Is it, is it Benin? I, I, I've always thought it was Benin, but again, I am not familiar with Gold Coast Africa um, enunciation. So I'm just doing my best here, folks. <laughs> but the Yoruba people were and remain some of the world's greatest drummers. Um, within the Yoruba tribe, there were groups called Igungun, um, or who were masqueraders who performed at various ceremonies, especially funerals and other ceremonies that uh, promoted ancestor worship. Um, these Igungun um, are included groups of musicians and I guess what I would call street dancers who performed highly choreographed routines in elaborate colorful costumes. Um, and so the Igungun are considered sort of the, uh, uh, the spiritual ancestor of the modern style of the HBCU band. Um, but now let's jump back to the reconstruction era in the U S. So, you know, just skipping over, you know, another 600 years right there. Um, but Josh, uh, the reconstruction era is upon us and we're going to find some early black minstrel troops. Oh boy. Uh, as you and Al Jolson both well know, these were a raving success. Um, yeah. Oof. Yeah, let's let's gloss over the uh, the races. <laughs> yeah. Um. So, but uh, we, we've got WC Handy, uh, more than just a line in um uh, in, in a one hit wonder pop song. Uh, in fact, one of the greatest composers of the second half of the nineteenth century, uh, the father of the blues. He is writing new music all day and night. America loves the blues. Um, and part of what they love is the showmanship that many of these ensembles um, and black minstrel troops bring to the blues. Um, and one thing that's interesting, a lot of these bands that are traveling around predominantly the South, um, they are composed of mostly former military band members um, who came from all black regiments during the Civil War. Um, so basically, insofar as I can tell, it's Morgan Freeman and... Uh, Denzel Washington uh, leading bands. Obviously. Yeah, I mean, if, if you've seen Glory, you know. Um, <laughs> so, um, Matthew Broderick's fourth best role. <laughs> I, I can't even think of three other Matthew Broderick roles, so that's... <laughs> uh, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Okay. MasterCard commercial. Does that even count? It's a role. Hey, it's paying Jennifer Aniston's bills, and she's got a lot of them. She's a habitual gambler. <laughs> she's got a gambling problem. I mean, I, I suppose. Um, she took the gamble that I ruined the joke because I forgot his name. The cable guy? What, what, the, we, no, no, no. Well, this is why we shouldn't do the show after so many beers. Uh Oh, Ben Affleck. I was, I was going to say... Well, yeah, she, she I, gambled, I, don't, I don't know why you were talking about Matthew Broderick in connection with... Uh, no, I was going to say she uh, she gambled that Ben Affleck would stay sober. Uh, well, that, that, that's a bad a gamble to take if you've seen what's on his back recently. Um, have you seen the back tat, Josh? Have you seen Ben Affleck's recent, uh, new back tat? No. Why would I? Giant back tattoo. Hopefully it's a Batman has... No, it's of some like weird like quasi phoenix bird rising from the ashes. Apparently, it's something about <laughs> getting divorced from Jennifer Garner is what people are saying. I don't know. Um, <laughs> he's idiotic to me, um, but you know. Well, I I know your story for uh, hey, what did you do last summer? Oh, I googled Ben Affleck's back tattoo. Hey man, listen, I, I ain't mad at it. I am not mad at it. Anyhow, um, besides that, um, we've got these, uh, you know, while some of the, of the of band members from the HBCU, uh, sorry, from the All Black Regiments during the Civil War, uh, you know, went to create these minstrel troops traveling on the South, other former military band members uh, began enrolling at HBCUs and forming their own bands on campus. Um, the first HBCU with a marching band was Tuskegee, um, and other schools uh, soon followed thereafter, like Kentucky State, Alabama State, and Florida A&M. Speaking of Florida A&M, they became true pioneers in the Aiden HBCU marching bands immediately following the Second World War. 
uh, at this point, the Rattlers band leader, William Foster, um, has his members start high-stepping. Uh, they are the first, uh, they are the first HBCU to start high-stepping uh, during their routines. The crowds adore it. He notices that these people are just loving the high-step, so he decides to get, uh, he decides that he needs help with choreography. So the first person he goes to ask, the physical education teacher at uh, Tuskegee Normal Institution, uh, or sorry, at Florida A&M, um, because nothing says choreography like a phys ed teacher. <laughs> but this style ends up taking off across the HBCUs. Within a decade, everyone's showing out. Grambling becomes so famous that they are the halftime show at the first ever Super Bowl in 1967. I would still take that over the current Super Bowl halftime shows. Oh my God! Yeah, I mean, I would t- at this point, I would take up with people over whatever the current <laughs> Super Bowl halftime show is. <laughs> like, come on! Didn't the uh, was it the Fiesta Bowl or one of the bowls? Were they famous for having like a zoo come out basically and have like wildlife, and then the elephants would just crap all over the field? The only thing I know about the Fiesta Bowl is that uh, I'm pretty sure it was a Fiesta Bowl. It was the the year that it was uh, Oklahoma, when USC absolutely thrashed Oklahoma for the national title, Um, uh, like 2002, I think, 2002, 2003, whatever that was, Um, uh, that the halftime performance was Ashley Simpson, and she got booed off stage. So was she lip-syncing, though? No, she was just bad. She was just awful. I was I was watching. Um, well, maybe she should have looked so. Yeah. Well. Um, uh, so anyhow, we've got. Um, so yeah, the HBCU bands are going at it, and now, Josh, this year, did you know that there is now an HBCU band poll that changes, uh, like the college football poll? Yeah, there's also one for uh, for the Big Ten. <laughs> Rutgers also finishes dead last at it. <laughs> so it's uh, it's just an example of what is it? Uh, art uh, reflecting reality, reflecting art or whatever. Yes. Because uh, uh, in this case, though, um, this year at the end of this uh, the first season, uh, this was actually past year was one of the first seasons of the official poll. Josh, uh, do you know who came out number one? No idea. Uh, I want to take a stab. Mm, I'm going to go with Southern. Just like the good old days, Josh, we have a split national championship. Yes. <laughs> uh, Southern, in fact, uh, is uh, uh, – Southern, in fact, does uh, do well, but not quite as well um, as Bethune-Cookman, Ooh. Who, who win the undefeated poll, uh, the undefeated ESPN poll. But they uh, are no match for NCANT's Blue and Gold Marching Machine, yeah. 2017 HBCU Sports Band of the Year by HBCU Sports Online. Yeah, the Aggies. So, um, <clears throat> uh, in fact, Bethune Cookman didn't even finish top two. Uh, Jackson State's Sonic Boom of the South. Ooh, great name. Yeah. yeah. Oh, yeah, definitely. Um, but we've got, uh, you know, so at this point, Josh, now we're, we're finally to the point where not only we have bands, we've got polls ranking the bands. Um, but obviously, Josh, the crowning achievement is the phenomenal Nick Cannon project from 2002, Drumline. Mm. And so there you have it, a brief history of the college football marching band. Nice. From Ottoman Turkey nice. to Nick Cannon. Yeah, um, I gotta be honest. You you buried some great band history, though. Oh, let's hear it. Yeah, I, I mean, I, I I've got other nuggets I can throw out there, but that didn't really just go into my narrative. So, hit me. Do you like bagpipes? I, I mean, I would be an insult to my Scottish ancestry if I did not. Um, so the University of Iowa used to have the University of Iowa Scottish Highlanders. Mm-hmm. And they became like really famous. Like I was looking at some stuff um, one time. Like they went to a World's Fair and performed. And back in the '60s and '70s, when the football team was absolutely terrible, uh, they got to perform at halftime with the regular band. So it'd be like bagpipes and then regular band. And they always did one Big Ten road game at least. 
And, like, from Dad's testimony, he said that, like, when the team was really, really bad, the highlight was the Highlanders. Wow, that's sad. Oh, um, well, speaking of, so, you know, having this, the rankings of, of bands isn't sort of like necessarily a novel thing. The John Philip Sousa Foundation um, has been uh, giving out an annual uh, Suttler Trophy to the best band in the country every year. And now the, the caveat with this is that a band cannot win the trophy twice under the same director. Mm-hmm. So you can win it, you know, more than once, but it has to be under different directors. Um, it, it began, the trophy began being given out in 1982, Josh. And now, uh, so from 1982 to 2017, that puts us at about uh, 35 different recipients. Um, how many HBCUs do you think uh, out of that 35 are, uh, are represented? Mm. And this is supposed to be the best marching band in the country. Mm. So it should be 20 some. Mm-hmm. But uh, we live in what is occasionally a racist country. So I'm going to say zero. Oh, you are so close. You are so close, Josh. The answer is one. <laughs> Florida A&M won uh, their Marching 100, won the 1985 Suttler Trophy. And yet Oklahoma has eight Suttler Trophies. Um, you know, they finished behind such luminaries as the, the UMass Minutemen Marching Band. Um, the To be fair, though, Massachusetts plays all their songs in a minute or less. Well, um, they have to because the, the British are coming to take them away. <laughs> but Josh, the Hawkeye Marching Band won in 1990, so... Uh, yeah, and guess what? They're still playing songs from 1990, so uh, they're stuck in a time machine. Aren't they still playing, like, Start Me Up at every kickoff? Uh, no, I think they finally got away from that. <laughs> oh, gosh, that was the worst. <laughs> that was the worst. Um, so, um, so yeah, but uh, current the current uh, Suttler Trophy, uh, the reigning Suttler Trophy recipient, Josh, uh, you get to stay within the great state of Iowa, the Cyclone Marching Band. Mm, good for that. Yeah. So uh, Iowa State is the current holder of the Suttler, the Suttler Trophy. Um, what, what other fun nuggets do you have for me, Josh? Well, I was just going to ask you uh, what your favorite fight song is. Uh, outside of uh, Wisconsin. Outside of on Wisconsin, which, um, like, as... As you know mine. I've been on the record about mine. Is it Ramblin' Wreck? Of course. Yeah. Ramblin' Wreck. Um, I really like Dynamite. Oh, I mean, yeah. Vanderbilt? Yeah. I love. I really like Dynamite. Obviously, I'm a little biased uh, being married to a Vandy alum. But um, if I have to stay out of that, as much as I hate to say it, um, uh, Notre Dame Victory March is pretty good. And the show's, the show's done. <laughs> and Hail to the Victors, uh, you know. Um, I mean, th- those are those are classics. The best part of Hell to the Victors is when they say that they're champions of the West. Yes, um, because Michigan is so far west. Uh, they were at the time. It was. Uh, why, it's, Northwestern was in the northwestern point of America at, at one point. So, um, so there we have it. So I guess the only thing left to do is uh, how about we sing our favorite fight songs? Uh, simultaneously, that might lead to uh, more dissonance than 15 oboes and and two drummers. No, no, no. I'll go first. I'll go first. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I mean, I'm, un, you know, I've said multiple times, I might have even said on the show, that I think Georgia Tech's fight song is honestly the best. It's, it's, um, it's, it's pretty great. I mean, I love, I love Wisconsin's, obviously, and I, obviously. Iowa has some quirks about their song that make it kind of fun. Um, but Georgia Tech talks about drinking and their rivalry and all that stuff. So for those of you unfamiliar with it, uh, I know the melody, but I'm not a very good singer, so I'll do more speaking than singing, but it goes, I'm a rambling wreck from Georgia Tech and a hell of an engineer. A hell of 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 an engineer. Like all the jolly good fellows, I drink my whiskey clear. I'm a rambling wreck from Georgia Tech and a hell of an engineer. 
Oh, if I had a daughter, sir, I'd dress her in white and gold and put her on the campus to cheer the brave and bold. But if I had a son, sir, I'll tell you what he'd do. He'd yell to hell with Georgia like his daddy used to do. <laughs> oh, I wish I had a barrel of rum and sugar 3,000 pounds, a college bell to put it in and a clapper to stir it round. i drink to all the good fellows who come from far and near. I'm a rambling gambling hell of an engineer. Uh, you're not going to get much better lyrics than that, Josh. Yeah, I mean, it's a perfect song. Now, a little bit, you know, a little bit shorter, but dynamite, dynamite, when Vandy starts to fight, down the field with blood to yield. If, if need be, save the shield. If victory's won, when battle's done, then Vandy's name will rise to fame. Win, not lose, it's ours to choose, and Vandy's game will be the same. Dynamite, dynamite, when Vandy starts to fight. Nice. So, there, and there's my dramatic retelling. Yeah. Um, and as much as we like those songs, uh, on Wisconsin's March, very, very famous melody used by the Beach Boys at one point in one of their songs. So, was it really? Yeah. Yeah. The, uh, the song about. Oh, uh, Be True to Your School. Yeah, Be True to Your School. Yeah, you're right. You're right. Um, that is correct. I forgot about that. Yeah. Um, and well, Beach Boys no match though for uh, uh, for for Wisconsin's own um, Josh, greatest rock band to ever come out of the University of Wisconsin. Mm, what's that? Oh, Steve Miller Band, obviously. Oh, well, I didn't know if that was a trick question. No, <laughs> there's, there's only. Well, I mean, I guess it's a trick question if you don't know that Steve Miller Band's the only good rock band to come ever come out of. <laughs> Wisconsin. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, but and now, obviously, uh, the Wisconsin Marching Band can't even play uh, one of the quintessential Steve Miller songs at games because Wisconsin students are too idiotic sometimes. Yeah, and uh, I mean, we should, we like to end these shows on uh, low points, so oh, for, those of, for those of you that don't know, Minnesota has the world's worst fight song. Uh, oh, hold on, Josh. This just in. Minnesota has the world's worst everything. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, this is, this is Minnesota's fight song, Minnesota Rouser. It goes a little something like this. And um, I'm going to do something that John Oliver does. John Oliver likes to have Donald Trump's insane quotes read in a normal voice because you can appreciate the insanity even better. So I'm just going to simply speak Minnesota's lyrics. Minnesota hats off to thee. To thy colors true we shall ever be. Firm and strong united are we. Ra, 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 for ski you ma. Ra, 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 ra for the U of M. Minnesota, hats off to thee. To thy colors true we shall ever be. Firm and strong united are we. Ra, 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 for ski you ma. Ra, 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 ra for the U of M. M I N N E S O T A Minnesota Minnesota Yeah Gophers I feel like that was uh, a verbal diarrhea spewed by a four-year-old <laughs> uh, There's about 10 words in it the, and and that's the, counting raw <laughs> <laughs> that's counting raw, that's counting yeah, and that's counting each letter in Minnesota being a different word. <laughs> because obviously they don't know how to, they don't know how to you know, spell their when, own the, when they play it, uh, I've been to some Minnesota games, so I've heard it in person. And when they play it at the games, it's like M-I-N-N-E-S-O-T-A, Minnesota, Minnesota, uh, Gophers. <laughs> That doesn't even make sense. It makes no sense. Well, I mean... No, it's... it's oh, good grief. It's the worst. It is honestly the worst. I don't know. Um, and to think Minnesota has won 31 of the 35 Stedman trophies. Because <laughs> they have a new band director every year? Yeah, because when they play the Minnesota Rouser, they quit. <laughs> they quit. They're like, oh, my God. How this is literally the dumbest song. <laughs> um, 
But um, if you are, though, interested in uh, the history of marching bands, especially the history of HBCU marching bands, uh, may I highly recommend uh, a book by the name of Marching to the Beat of a Different Drum, uh, Performance Traditions of Historically Black College and University Marching Bands um, by William Dukes Lewis, um, who was a... uh, uh, This was actually... This came out of his graduate work at UNC Chapel Hill. So, um, and that's where I got a lot. Now, did he, uh, did he actually attend those classes or? Well, like all <laughs> other North Carolina students, uh, the classes were attended by, um, no one. In fact, they were, <laughs> uh, so somehow though, uh, I think a bunch of monkeys at a computer were, uh, just <laughs> typed a bunch of letters together and randomly got a thesis. <laughs> what if that was the sole purpose of UNC Charlotte? was just to have people doing work that then is submitted for North Carolina athletes. They wouldn't do it to Charlotte, though. They'd definitely do that at UNC Greensboro. Ooh, shade thrown. Yeah, or UNCW. Well, you know, at least uh, UNC Charlotte has a nickname that makes sense about being the 49ers in honor of the California Gold Rush. Yes, of course, because that makes so much sense. (laughs) I don't think that's actually the reason, but it's... No, it it, it can't be. It can't be. Um... (laughs) I mean, I, uh, I, I don't, I, if, <laughs> but you know, um, I, I'm actually doing some, some very quick, uh, some, some very. I quick mean, their, their logo yeah. does, their logo does include a pickaxe, so. Uh, so the, the athletic team is the 49ers. Uh, is indicative of the fact that UNC Charlotte, which was originally called Charlotte College, was saved from permanent closure in 1949. Mm. Um, But their logo... Their mascot is named Norm the Niner. Yeah, but their logo includes a pickaxe like someone might use while gold mining. Yep. Norm the Niner. Let's see what... It's a guy dressed in a cowboy hat with a pickaxe, again, calling very common symbols of the Old West and the California Gold Rush. (laughs) I mean, Josh, you know what they say. I mean, the California Gold Rush starts at the North Carolina-South Carolina border. Goodness. All right. Well, I think we're going to end there. They have a statue on campus that is a guy panning for gold. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Uh, They have some explaining to do. Uh, Yeah, I think we... Do you know anyone who has attended uh, UNC Charlotte? No, because no one would ever admit to that. Okay, uh, touche. Yeah, if you Google Norm the Niner statue, there's a statue on their campus of a guy panning for gold. There really is. (laughs) There really is. And it's like, he doesn't look like he's overly intelligent either. Like, if you look at him, he's... Oh, now I'm looking at a picture who is uh, of a woman holding like a uh, a stuffed animal version of Norm the Niner next to the statue of Norm the Niner, and I'm getting a little creeped out. <laughs> I, I mean, like, what? You know, Charlotte's a struggling football program. We obviously hope them the best. There, hold on, hold on. But, but it's really hard not to make fun of them. At this well, moment. Josh, you, you know how uh, you know know how we've got uh, PJ Fleck, row, you know, row, row your boat. Um, or uh, chop that wood from uh, our old friend there at Rutgers. Do you, do you know what their uh, their little slogan is there at, at UNC Charlotte, Josh? Find those nuggets. <laughs> I wish. Stake your claim. <laughs> that goes to mining. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> UNC Charlotte. Mm. Oh my goodness. Or are they Ooh. just Charlotte at this point? Is it, is it Charlotte? Is it UNC Charlotte? Is it both? Is it neither? Um, I don't know. I, I would lean towards 
calling it still UNC Charlotte. But that's, I mean that, that that's what I call it. Um, but at the same time, University of North Carolina at Charlotte. Yeah, but like at the same time, I usually call uh, Purdue IUPUI. So, uh, do you call Buffalo the State University of New York at Buffalo? Well, yeah. I mean, they're a SUNY. You gotta you gotta honor them. They asked us to name them that, and they very clearly put on their football jerseys for one season on uh, New York and big bold letters, and then Buffalo and teeny tiny font on me. Because mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. when you when you I don't know about you, but when I think of New York, generally I think of the Great Lakes region, followed by the Adirondacks, followed by um, they got kind of a town kind of down south. You, you forgot about the Finger Lakes, dude. No, but we're gonna, you know, I'm going to forget about the Finger Lakes. Uh, I'd rather go to Long Island. Ooh, harsh, harsh, <laughs> oh, dude, Josh, you just completely lost our our audience in in in, in Canandaigua. Like, how are you going to do that to us? Come on. Well, you know, they're, they're still shoveling out snow. They don't have Wi-Fi signal to download our podcast. This is this is very true. This is very true. Um, <sighs> also, when you Google UNC Charlotte right now, the first story that comes up, UNC Charlotte student arrested after telling doctor he could not wait for school shooting. <laughs> wait, what? <laughs> yep. Um, UNC Charlotte student from King arrested on... On charge, he made false report of mass violence at school. Yikes! That's uh... so. Uh, that's just getting a little bit too real. So that's. I think that's the time for us to sign off. Yeah, I felt like we were vamping there at the end. Although uh, this was a good story, and I'm really glad that, like most of our short punts, uh, it, it eventually worked its way to UNC Charlotte. Of course, as it should, as it should. Um, so we'll be back at you sometime in the near future with another show. Who knows what it'll be on? Uh, but it'll be something fun again. Um, I've got a couple more ideas, you know, brewing. So, uh, so uh, on behalf of uh, our dear friend and uh, intrepid blogger from Big Ten and Counting up there in the Windy City, Josh Cook, this is a professor, Matt Perkins in Nashville, Tennessee, saying so long and see you next time on the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. Thanks for listening to the Illegal Motion College Football Podcast. To get in touch with the show, email us at illegalmotionpodcast at gmail.com or follow us on Twitter at illegal underscore motion. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.